I'm continuing the lesson that we began this morning on the church of Christ described by Jesus. And you and I need to think as we begin this morning, and I really want to emphasize our vision of the Lord's church is important. This afternoon as I was reading some people who are wanting to be religious, but they don't want religion. And I hear many people say that I am interested in who Jesus Christ is, but I'm not interested in his church. And I feel sorry for those people because they don't understand God's view of the church. You see, as we go to passages like 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7, Samuel is told by God, God doesn't see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. We too often are concentrating on the external parts where God looks at the internal part. For instance, tonight, God knows whether or not you are engaged in your mind and in your heart as to what he would have you to do. We talked about Job for just a moment and about how Job wondered if God could be able to see through his eyes and be able to understand what he was enduring. And obviously God can. And we looked at the book of Ephesians chapter 3 verses 8 through 11 where God wanted all men to see the fellowship of the mystery which for ages had been hidden in Christ. We pointed out that there were six lessons in our series the church determined, the one the prophet saw, the church described by Jesus, the church described by Paul, the church declared as it is preached, the design of the church, and then finally the deliverance when the church will be handed back to the Father. And this morning we pointed out that there were seven parables which our Lord spoke in Matthew chapter 13. And we looked at the first three of those, the parable of the sower, the parable of the tares and the parable of the mustard seed. We began by explaining why the Lord wanted to speak in parables. He wanted to conceal some things from those who did not love the Lord and did not love his kingdom and his word while at the same time revealing something to those who did love him and those who wanted to understand. We talked about the parable of the sower representing the four different types of soils represented the four different types of hearts and that some would never believe because they're so calloused toward the truth. Some will believe in a moment, but then they will quickly fall away. Others will find themselves just choked out, and then finally there would be some that would be like on good ground. In the parable of the tares, the Lord explains that parable. The enemy came and sowed in the same field where wheat had been sown, and he attempted to try to confuse and divert the owner of the field by planting something that was deceptive, but eventually was known, and the Lord was going to point out there would be a time in which the tares would be gathered at the end of the age and would be gathered and burned. Then we talked about the parable of the mustard seed for just a moment. We talked about how it starts out as just a small, almost like a pepper-sized seed and grows into a great plan, and it's talking about the growth of the Lord's kingdom. So we pick up now in verse 33, and I encourage you to open your Bibles there to Matthew 13, verse 33. 
the final four parables will be very short, and yet they're going to be packed with such great thoughts as our Lord wants us to see the kingdom as he sees it. Another parable, he spoke to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Now I will point out to you as you read this that the phrase three measures of meal was about 40 liters. And you imagine your two liter drinks, it would take uh, 20 of those. So that's a lot. She's baking a lot of bread for a large crowd of people here. But there's two different ways that a person might be able to look at the term leaven. You know, the term leaven is a term most often in the Bible used to describe something that spreads and infects in an evil way. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, he said, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. The leaven about which Paul speaks there is certainly not good. But in just three chapters following this, in chapter 16 and verse 6, Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Leaven was an influencing agent, and most often the Lord used it to describe something that was leavened in a bad way. But there's another way to take it. And leaven here was intentionally put in this bread. It was put there by the woman who was baking the bread. So there was a good intent. And it talks about the intentional growth of the church. And thus the church should be an influence for good in this world. If you'll remember on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 through 16... The Lord said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how will it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on the hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand that gives light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You see, influence can either be good or bad. And in the parable of the leaven, this woman puts the three, uh, this leaven into the three measures of meal because she wants it to influence the whole. God wants those of us who are His children to influence this world in a good way. Now, I think there's something valuable to understand about both the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. And that is, in the context here, the key point is growth, but just a little sometimes can make great things happen. You remember in Galatians 5 and verse 9, simply a little leaven leavens a whole lump. It doesn't take a lot. It doesn't take a whole lot of people to do a great amount of good. It only sometimes takes, as the Lord said, just a cup of cold water given in His name. Sometimes it only takes 
you saying something to one of your neighbors that opens a door that sometimes brings about the conversion of a whole family. I remember Brother Flavel Nichols used to tell the story about the conversion of one little red-headed girl and how that little red-headed girl grew up and she bore several boys. Every one of those boys became gospel preachers and because of that it influenced a tremendous amount of people. It's just like Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 10 says, Who has despised the day of small things? Let's say, for instance, one little girl comes forward and she obeys the gospel. No one knows how much good that may come from that one thing of her being converted. And so when you talk about the leaven, certainly there are great influences within it. Let's look now at verse 44. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for his joy over it goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, let me explain to you why treasure is hidden in a field. Because if you read your Bible carefully, there weren't safe deposit boxes where people could go and seal vaults to be able to put their money and hide it there. Most often people would hide it in their homes. But do you remember what Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 19, where he talks about thieves break in and steal, moth and rust corrupts? You see, people would many times not only bury their treasure in their homes, but sometimes they would go out in a field. And once they had buried it, like some of you may know of your grandparents or great-grandparents, they forget where that's been placed. I've had many people tell me that uh, if your grandparents pass away and you have to go and clean out their house, be careful that you open every canister in the deep freeze because you may find money in the deep freeze or money in the mattress or money in a hole in the wall. But this man sees the treasure in the field. He finds it. He hides it again, and then he goes and sells it, everything that he has to buy that. Well, it emphasized treasure that was found by accident. It was not looking. And if you'll remember, the apostle Paul was converted that way. He was on his road to Damascus to persecute Christians. And while he was on the road, the Lord appeared to him in a great light. You see, it wasn't something he was looking for. In Acts 9, verses 1 and 2, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked from him letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were out of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He's not going because he's wanting to learn the truth. But while he goes, he finds the truth. You see, one is wise to take advantage of a great opportunity. Here's a man, he's not trying to cheat the landowner. He's trying to buy it and he sells what is necessary and gives the price and buys the field. You and I need to realize the treasure that the church really is. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, 
I want you to know what great conflict I have for you and for those of Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. That their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see, it is within the kingdom, within the church, that we find this treasure. And what the Lord is trying to say is, the person who finds it should be willing to sacrifice everything for it. When you start thinking about sacrifice, sacrifice for something great, I think back to 2 Samuel chapter 24. If you'll remember in studying 2 Samuel 24, the David had numbered the children of Israel. And in doing so, God was angry with him and David had to offer a sacrifice to God. And in doing so, he goes to Aruna to buy his threshing floor. Aruna was wanting to just give it to David. No, let me give it to you, David. It's something that you need to be able to offer your sacrifices to God. And listen to David. Then the king said to Aruna, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. He says, I'm not going to offer the Lord something that costs me nothing. I'm going to give what it takes to serve God acceptably. That's what we need to be thinking about. Someone says, well, if you become a Christian, you'll have to contribute to the work of the church. Yes, you will. You give as you prosper. Someone says, if you become a Christian, you'll have to spend time going to church and you'll have to spend time studying your Bible. Yes, you will. But you see, that's such a little thing to give for the great treasure that you enjoy. Let's talk about the pearl of great price. In verses 45 and 46. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking goodly or beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. You see, pearls, like today, were very precious gems. They were traded among the traders. They were appreciated for their value. And someone might would find smaller ones and maybe those that were irregular in shape. But here's one pearl and it is of a great price. Now when you start thinking about this, you contrast this man with the one who finds the treasure in the field. The man who found the treasure in the field, he just happened upon it. He wasn't looking for it, but he found it. Here's a man who is looking for and searching for goodly pearls. He knows there's a valuable one out there and he's looking for it. You have to recognize the value of it and be willing to sacrifice. Oh, I may have ten pearls here, but they're not of good quality and they're not of that great size. But oh, that one great pearl, that's the one I've been looking for. As you go through the Bible, you can start finding people who are like this. You think about the Ethiopian eunuch. He was reading from Isaiah 53 and he was wanting to know about the Christ. 
He was interested. He was searching. And he found what he was looking for. And he was willing to do whatever it took. He said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Acts 8 and verse 37. Cornelius was like this. Here's a just man, a good man. And he's told to send for Peter. And Peter comes. When he arrives, Peter arrives. Cornelius said, we're all here before God to hear things which have been spoken to you by the Lord. And Peter began to teach them. And Cornelius and his household were baptized. You get to Acts 16 and you find Lydia meeting with the women of prayer by the riverside. Paul comes and preaches to them. All of these were seeking people. They were looking for that pearl of great price. But I want to point out to you that those people who are willing to give up everything, willing to sacrifice for it, will truly get the treasure. In Matthew or Mark chapter 10, verses 28 through 30, Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you that no one who has left houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, or wife, or children, or lands for my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, and mothers, and children, lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Look at what you're going to get. You change in everything that you think you have here in this life for being a Christian, for being a part of the Lord's church. And the blessings here are greater than anything else that you could ever hope to have. And then, in eternity, eternal life. Now the last of the seventh parables. Let's look at verses 47 through 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast in the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew it to shore. And they sat down and they gathered the good into vessels, but they threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and separate the wicked from the just and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. You know, too often when we read about fishing in the Bible, we put in our minds the way they fished was to take some sort of pole or rod and to put a line and to put some sort of a bait on it. But the truth is, they had a big net. And they would swing that net out into the water and let it fall down. And they had a rope on it. And when they pulled the net up, it would draw it in together. And all the fish that were there would be caught into that net. In fact, there have been some nets that have been observed in the Sea of Galilee to be a half a mile long. You can imagine trying to pull those in. But you can go to John chapter 21, verses 6 through 8, and you can read a very vivid description of this. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, 
and you will find some. They cast the net, and they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard it, that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, about 200 cubits, dragging the net with the fish. You can imagine, here they are, they have this net, and they're dragging it up on the shore, and after they get it there, they're going to start separating. And this is similar to the parable of the wheat and the tares, with the emphasis on eternal separation, the separation of the good and the bad, where the bad are punished. And God determines what kind of fish are good and what kind of fish are bad. You know, I think it's interesting. Here's a photo of a group of people, and they've, they've had a catch. They've got a net there, and they're going through. They're good ones they're going to put in the baskets. The others they're going to throw away. I don't want to be one of those people at the end of time whom God says they're just not worthy. They're not worthy of keeping. I want to be one of the good fish that makes it into the kingdom. You see, each of these parables have some aspect to teach us about the church. And as our Lord looks at the various parables, that's probably not the way you and I would want to describe the church. But you see, the Lord had in mind emphasizing the reception of the gospel. And every one of us who are Christians have received the gospel. Some of us may be like the stony ground. Some of us may be like the thorny ground. And hopefully most of us are good ground. The Lord emphasizes how he wanted the church to grow. He wanted it to be where there's an influence. And that it goes from being something small to something great. Never discount the fact that you may be able to be the one person who is able to say something that will reach someone. Never discount your value in the growth of the kingdom. And then the Lord emphasizes in the parables of the pearl of great price and the treasure found in the field the great value of the church. You know, song number 290 in our songbook, I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode. How wonderful that Lord's church is and that you and I can be a part of it. If it is this great treasure, why would anybody refuse it? Why would anyone ever say, give me Jesus, but don't give me the church? Because it is that great body that our Lord created for you and I to be a part of. Tonight, if you are not a Christian, and we have some in our audience that are perhaps thinking and contemplating, I need to obey the gospel What are you waiting for? Why are you waiting? That was the question that the Ananias was asking Paul. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on the name of the Lord. I would also ask, 
If you look at your life and you see, I've not been living the way God wants me to live, what are you waiting for? You need to make sure that your eternal salvation is guaranteed. Or to use the words of Scripture, make your calling and election sure. If you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, would you come now as we stand and sing?